Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Rabia Iqbal and Jehan Chu of Neural Capital, which is a crypto-focused hybrid fund that invests in both crypto funds and companies. Before launching Neural, Rabia spent time at Kotu and Mubadala, while Jehan is also a partner at blockchain-focused Kinetic Capital and has been one of the early pioneers within the crypto space. Given the dynamic and ever-evolving world of crypto, we had a great conversation in unpacking all angles on the space, including the current winter we are in, the role of governance, and insights on where crypto may go from here. We really hope you enjoy our conversation with Rabia and Jahan. Rabia and Jahan, so great to have you guys on today, and thanks for uh, both joining us. It's a real treat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Samir. I've been so excited to have this conversation, given how much has happened in the crypto world, the amount of time that the two of you have spent within the world of crypto, really stemming back to the early days. But before we get into where crypto is today, where you see opportunities, let's talk a little bit about the two of you getting together to start Neural Capital. What brought you together and what were some of the unique observations that you saw in terms of the type of opportunity that you wanted to build around? That's a really great question to start with. I guess I began investing in the space in 2017. And once I saw the technology behind the blockchain, I couldn't really unsee it. You know, back during that time, it took significant time and effort to find quality resources and like-minded individuals who were actually really interested in investing in the space. Um, I actually started nerding out over uh, the internet with a a number of people and then ultimately met uh, a few people in in in-person meetups as well who had been investing in the space. Early on, I just learned that finding and building community was going to be an important part of uh, building this ecosystem. And ultimately, it was going to be the cornerstone for the adoption and the growth in the space. I noticed that the most most successful people really in the space uh, were supported by a global community. And it wasn't, uh, it, it it was one of those unique observations that I knew that I had to dig into. And when I met Jahan, it was really apparent that he had this electric community building element of everything he was doing in the space. He built exciting meetups and educational opportunities for people to come into the space and invest in the space. And you know, even prior to meeting Jahan, another thing that I had realized was that there wasn't a great product for high net worth individuals, RIAs, or even institutions to get this broad type of exposure in the space. And I had personally in, been investing uh, in the blockchain through investing in different crypto funds and developing relationships with those GPs who manage those crypto funds, and then also investing with founders who I had been meeting and taking direct positions in, in, in projects. And I wanted to build a product where others would have that same type of hybrid, diversified exposure that I had m- during during my early days in in investing in the space. So when one one day I was catching up with Jahan and I had mentioned to him 
this hybrid fund, which I was putting together where LPs could access top established managers and managers that are oversubscribed or might have high minimums, also getting people access to emerging managers. These are managers that are a little bit difficult to find and you know, they might have a sector specialty in the space. You know, another element of the hybrid fund was LPs would get direct access to deals and they could potentially do co-invest. This whole package, when I talked to Jahan about it, really resonated with him. And um, he loved the idea of bringing more of these managers into a, a kind of like a community vehicle and LPs also into this kind of vehicle as well. And Jahan took it to the Kinetic team. And, you know, before I knew it, we got to building something really differentiated. Partnering with Kinetic has been extremely additive to the strategy. They have such a deep background of knowledge and relationships in the space and, you know, truly a track record that kind of speaks to itself. So we're, we're really lucky to be partnered together. And, you know, we found each other at a, at a really great time uh, from a lot of lessons that we had learned in the space. And Jahan, Rabia mentioned that she started investing and really following the, uh, the crypto space in 2017. I think your history goes even to the earlier days of crypto. Maybe you can just quickly give us your background. And then again, what led up to you being so excited about Neural? Yeah, uh, thanks again for, for having us. I mean, I have a front-end developer background. Uh, so I used I was in the first dot-com boom in New York, you know, working for a startup and then worked for Sotheby's for many years in technology um, when they moved into Hong Kong and was then on the art side for a while and then actually left technology to become an art dealer. So I have a very strong foot in the contemporary art world. But it was when I was an art dealer that I, I got into Bitcoin personally back in 2013. Uh, and I started the um, the Ethereum community in, in Hong Kong in 2014, about March of 2014. Uh, and that's kind of how I got to know like Vitalik and Joe Lubin, a lot of the early kind of Ethereum uh, community. Because I started the Ethereum community in Hong Kong, that really kind of embedded me into that generation um, of community builders, as, as Rabia said. And I was doing my own thing. I was advising. I was kind of investing. Uh, but it wasn't until 2016 when I started Kinetic. Uh, and Kinetic was really the first blockchain VC in Hong Kong, and probably one of the first two or three in all of Asia. Uh, so that's kind of my how I mark my generation of, of crypto, and a lot of my peers come from that that kind of time period. We since then have you know kind of gone through a number of different uh, cycles: investing, uh, high frequency trading, structured products, um, advisory, uh, as well as community. But now we're really primarily a VC. Uh, we operate primarily as a family office. Uh, I mean, we've invested in over, you know, 240 blockchain companies, ranging from equity and crypto. Uh, we've incubated companies, you know, and we've just seen multiple cycles. So uh, that's kind of our generation of crypto. And then when uh, I met Rabia through the Kauffman Network, and we're both Kauffman Fellows, you know, it's a really incredible program filled with incredibly experienced and insightful investors. There's a high level of trust uh, in the Kauffman Network. And um, my friend Saad from Telstra Ventures introduced uh, Rabia and, uh, and her husband, Niall, who are good friends. That immediately, you know, was, was really an incredible validator for Rabia and her ability and her pedigree uh, and her experience. Uh, and then when she pitched us on the City of the Fund of Funds, like, I love the idea of a female-led LP in the crypto space. I think that's true 
kind of innovation and, and something which we haven't really seen before uh, and something which is meaningful, you know, beyond the kind of price, you know, the prices and returns. So that's really what attracted us to it, plus her experience. And so that's kind of how Neural came came to be. It's a great story. And, and I, I do want to double click on the hybrid model a little bit later in this conversation, especially given the, the number of managers that are out there the number of different applications of what crypto is, um, which I th- still think has a lot of confusion. Where we are right now is we've seen a dramatic reversal in the markets, public markets, crypto markets. Of course, Bitcoin was near 70,000. I think 67,000 was the high. It's down to 20. Ethereum is down 75%. Unlike the public markets, which have been on this 13-year bull run, it feels like cryptos had multiple winters along the way. Can you talk through, at least from your perspective, what is similar or different about this particular winter that we're going through relative to what we've seen in the past? My, my first winter was, was actually just when I started. I bought my first Bitcoin in like late 2013, and uh, I think it was around $900. And interestingly, the, the first Bitcoin I ever bought was actually from Arthur Hayes, uh, who is the founder of BitMEX, uh, a very kind of well-known and, and in, in some cases infamous type of uh, exchange? So I bought it at nine hundred dollars, and the price crashed to two hundred dollars uh, within the like within the next like four or five months. So that was my first taste of of kind of uh, you know bear cycles. But I continued buying all the way down, and, and I think that really prepared me uh, for what's to come and the roller coaster uh, of of crypto. You know, having seen that, and then having seen kind of the crash in two thousand eighteen, and having you know to restructure the company back then. I think what's mostly different is that in 2018, uh, as it was in 2000, you know, kind of 14, it was existential. Each bear cycle was a real question of what are we doing here? Uh, and all the people that had come in and invested and speculated all the kind of progress that we felt that we'd made at the end of the day, when the crash and the dust from the crash settled, it was a question of, does this really work? And I think that's different now. In 2018, a lot of people left the industry who had, who had come in from TradFi had come in from you know traditional businesses and in finance. But this time, so many people from banks and from financial institutions and, and all you know areas of industry have come in, but they're not leaving. The price has crashed, you know, however much, 50, 60, 70%, but people are staying. The mind share is staying. Um, the gains that we've had from a technical, from a an adoption, uh, in even regulatory um, acceptance and, and understanding. All of these things have crystallized into a much more solid foundation uh, of the future of technology than what we had in 2018, which was still very much a question. Now, I would say blockchain is a statement. In 2018, it was, it was still a bit of like, uh, you know, a question. I think that's a really important point that Jahan made. It's, it's the amount of capital that's entered the space from great uh, venture capital firms that, you know, Samir, you've, you've actually interviewed a lot of them before for, for this podcast. That capital is, is still earmarked for uh, this space and it's not going anywhere. And then what else is different is um, we see that a lot of the talent that moved over from Web 2 to Web 3 is here to stay and those devs that are that are in the space building they're not going to go back to web 2 just yet um they want to 
explore, build and stealth, kind of ride out this winter. And one of the things that we say is that, you know, when when this winter's over, it's going to be even stronger because the gold is mined in the winter. And that we truly believe we're seeing we're seeing like unbelievable founders at this point. So developing great projects at this point and capital there to support great projects too. So, you know, there, there are, there are some uh, similarities, but there are definitely differences in what we're seeing. And and there's, there there seems to be a lot more adoption, um, mainstream adoption. It does seem to me that in the course of 2020 and 21, when there was so much liquidity injected into the system, that asset prices were increasing pretty dramatically and people were speculating on assets. And crypto was one of those areas where people not only speculated, but there was this continued belief that crypto would be non-correlated to other asset categories. Instead, of course, this year we've seen crypto drop similarly to what we've seen in the growth public stocks. Why do you think that's the case? And do you still believe that crypto as an asset category or or as an asset in the long term will be non-correlated to your traditional equities? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, an important question. I think that the narrative around kind of non-correlation actually does hold true. It just depends on how far you want to zoom in. I think that, you know, when we're talking about months, uh, quarters, and and potentially even years, there is a high degree of correlation, uh, especially because the crypto markets are so liquid. And when we talk about, and we're really talking about crypto markets, not blockchain, but because the crypto markets are, are you know, proxies for, for currency and, and value and somewhere in between and technology, you do see, uh, you know, these markets rhyming um, to a high degree. But at the same time, I think when we start to zoom out, you actually see that even over the course of the past like five years, it's highly uncorrelated. The amount of gains that the, even the crypto markets, forget about blockchain, the crypto markets have have increased is very different from what we've seen uh, from even the tech mark, uh, the tech market versus the overall. So I think that correlation is all relative to how far in you want to, you know, zoom to in, in order to kind of make that make that case. I will say that at least for the midterm, the short to midterm, we do expect that the crypto markets will be highly influenced uh, by kind of the overall macro uh, kind of economic condition and, and the markets. Um, and that's more of a liquidity kind of issue versus anything else. But I think one of the areas that it's not correlated, and this is really hard to gauge, but it's an important point, is that from a value and from a technology perspective, it's highly uncorrelated, only from what you can see on the surface, which is token price, which is a very limited indicator of the overall industry, right? Because crypto does not represent all of blockchain technology. It just represents what is liquid and what's in the market. But under the surface of the crypto, there's tons of innovation, of value being created. There's tons of adoption in everything from permission ledgers to you know, distributed ledger technology to public blockchain, um, which is much harder to quantify because it's a young industry and we don't see you know, more than a handful of public companies. So there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a you know, uh, an albatross there in terms of trying to you know, benchmark these, these kinds of public performance. I was just looking at some of the uh, the charts before the show of some of the major cryptocurrencies and really looked at 2019 to 2021 and just saw astronomical, unbelievable growth. And this year, as we've touched on, it's been tough times. And to be specific, things like Terra Luna, Voyager, Celsius have all been in the news for the wrong reasons. 
Are there any specific lessons that we can extract from what's happening today? These lessons are, are always kind of hard won, hard learned. Again, separating blockchain from crypto, I think from the blockchain perspective, there's not a whole lot of lessons. I mean, it's, it's technology. Um, there's, you know, it's, you can rely on kind of fundamental values and fundamental, you know, methodologies for kind of understanding the value that a company creates. It's no different. It shouldn't be different. From the crypto side, I think that the lessons are quite interesting because the interrelatedness and the speed of which things kind of ripple in the pond um, is just breathtaking. And I think that there are these natural firewalls in the Web2 world and the Web2 economy because there is no blockchain, because there are intermediaries, because you know there are friction points and inefficient points for capital to travel. Um, and also because the traditional financial world is so highly regulated that you have these kind of buffers built in and you have you know safety mechanisms. For better or for worse, the crypto world does not have that because it's too early. In some cases, it's undesirable. But I think what we're seeing now is that there needs to be a higher standard of risk management. There needs to be a higher standard uh, of understanding the, the, the interrelatedness of technology and finance, because this is the true expression of fintech. It's DeFi. And we're necessarily kind of creating new ideas uh, of how to you know, work um, and how value is transferred. And things like, you know, decentralized automated market makers, like that's new. Uh, and it creates dynamics and it creates interdependencies, which unless you can really get to the code level and you have a, a degree in economics, it might be hard to really understand for the average person. So I think, you know, as with any kind of maturation process of two industries, technology and finance, it would behoove us to take a little bit more time before launching, to really dig in uh, and to be more critical and to be slightly more conservative in terms of what gets out to the public and how it's uh, available to the public. At the same time, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's incredible innovation and opportunity that has been created from the Web3 world. Decentralization, I think, is, an, is, a, is and will be like a net positive to you know, society, not just finance, but culture, governance transparency, human rights. And we have to be willing to, you know, kind of take it on the chin while we learn. You know, we did it with every single industry that came before, you know, crypto and blockchain. Um, and that is how, you know, we learn and get better. And I think that this is a, a, a tough but valuable lesson, not just for the crypto industry, because we're used to it, but for the mainstream industry in terms of if you really want to get value out of this, you know, the, literally the, the future of the internet um, you have to be willing to kind of take a few lumps, and I and I think we can get better. And and just the continuation of what Jahan's saying is that you know right now we see people focused on regulating the industry, and regulation used to be a scary thing for this industry, but now with more institutions coming in, more more people trying to integrate Web3 solutions into their, uh, in, into their daily operations, I think that that regulation is a good thing and it's going to be here. And, and as long as people are thinking about regulations in the right way and, and you know, we've seen lobbying dollars uh, increase into this space in a meaningful way, if, if 
the people crafting the regulations can do so in a positive way that doesn't crush this innovation that Jahan's talking about, that's a net positive for everyone. Let's touch on governance for a minute, because I do think that at least historically, we've seen verticals, industries, technologies be enabled by the presence of a rational governance framework. But in crypto, it does seem like things are changing. What do you see as governance in crypto and what do you think is needed? I'm not sure what what level of governance and and kind of regulation is needed, um, because to be honest, we're not even sure what this is yet. Every whatever, uh, sorry, 12 to 18 months, we have an entirely new industry inside of, you know, blockchain and crypto. There was, there was DeFi, there's NFTs, there's GameFi, and all these things are coming at such a rapid pace. They're, they'll all need to have their own kind of regulatory considerations. I think what's interesting about blockchain and crypto uh, and decentralization generally is that it's not a zero-sum game in the sense that it has to be all regulated or has to be all unregulated. And this is partially you know, one of our theses, is this whole idea of hybridity or hybrid, uh, a hybrid future. I personally am not like a decentralization maxi. I don't think everything necessarily must be decentralized uh, or that it should be or that it's beneficial. I think that uh, a reasonable and pragmatic application of decentralized technology in the context of traditional business, enterprise, government, that's a very, you know, likely outcome. And I think which is actually net beneficial to the mainstream, to the real people who don't care whether you're decentralized or not, who don't care whether or not you know, it's, uh, there's a blockchain behind it. They just want a better product for a cheaper price faster. And if blockchain and decentralization can deliver that, that's great. But I do think that in the, the path to decentralization leads to the gates uh, of semi-decentralization. And it will be a lot of these Web2 companies edging into and integrating layers of decentralized technology into their $10 billion companies, whether it's um, Salesforce, you know, who's making a big push into NFTs or Shopify, who's integrated NFTs or, or Twitter, who's integrated, you know, NFTs, like that's kind of going to be the more likely path, this hybrid uh, kind of future. So I think that, you know, where we go with this is, is, is pretty, pretty exciting. There's, there's value all around, but we have to be open to this kind of blended uh, approach and, and not be so kind of dogmatic. And from a regulatory standpoint, it means that you don't necessarily have to choose. There, there's room for all. Uh, but the market will decide uh, whether or not your fully decentralized version of Twitter or your centralized version of Twitter using, you know, PFPs as or these, you know, proof, these uh, avatars uh, in a decentralized way, which one is the better value to the end user. So the market is tough, but fair uh, and will judge, you know, where value actually sits. And that's the ultimate, I think, you know, kind of threshold that we as early crypto adopters and early crypto kind of pioneers need to be able and willing to, to kind of cross uh, in order for this technology to really fulfill its, its promise. Jahan and I have actually spent a lot of time talking about this hybrid model, right? Where there's this, this intersection between Web 2 and Web 3 and the, the end solution for, for a user, I think, is for somebody do not even know that they're utilizing blockchain technologies or NFTs and they just find their experience as valuable as, as it is in Web 2 while they're leveraging Web 3 technology. One of the examples that we can use is one of the companies that we invested in is, is Yuga Labs. 
and um, they're the producers of Board Ape Yacht Club. Let's say that, you know, you um, hypothetically bought a Board Ape on, um, on Twitter marketplace, and, and this is like the future when we're utilizing uh, Web3 technologies on your Web2 applications. So you you bought Board Ape Yacht Club, like a, a, a product like a Board Ape on, a, on Twitter marketplace. And then um, that's your profile profile picture now. And there are, you know, royalties associated with that Board Ape. And those royalties directly go into your Ethereum wallet. And that's all a seamless transaction without you even knowing that you're utilizing Web3 technology. Like that is the goal. We want we want people to have that seamless experience, that hybrid experience without even having to to shift in their brain. Like I'm now in Web3 world. That's a little bit of, of what what we're, we're 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 aiming to get at with with every single company that we look at and invest in. Common discussion I have, and I'm sure these are discussions that you constantly have is really around the use cases of things like Web3 versus Web2. And on Twitter, people tend to fall into one or two camps, being crypto enthusiasts or being crypto or Web3 detractors. And, you know, it can be hotly debated. It's, you know, highly polarizing. But are there areas where you do believe a Web3 application has significant advantages over traditional Web2? Yeah, it, it kind of cuts to the to the crux of like, you know, where's the value here uh, and why Web3? I would reframe it slightly. It's not Web2 versus Web3. Web3 is an evolution of Web2 and Web2 is an evolution of Web, you know, 1.0. Web3 is simply helping to kind of reduce the friction in many ways. And that reduced friction, that increased transparency, that increased direct relationship between parties who are transacting in value or data via the blockchain that's really the the innovation it's a you know it's an acceleration and a security and a transparency that is a step change above what we have in web 2 and of course that again that cuts both ways as we see as we saw with like the kind of defi crash uh, just recently it's not that what can web 3 do that web 2 can't sure we can kind of list a lot of things um, like you know true ownership of digital assets right good luck trying to accurately appraise a JPEG for which you can just control C, control V, and create an infinite number. With NFTs, you have true, transparent, um, mathematically provable sovereign ownership of a digital asset in an age of you know natively digital culture. That's important and that's new. But really, that's just a better way of, of owning an asset. You know, in this age, so for sure, there's things that can do better. But again, I think that Web three. Is a, it's a tool set, right? It's not a different understanding of, of how technology works. It's just a better way of, of kind of improving what already exists. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very big improvement. And more importantly, I think that, again, Web3, for whatever that actually means, it's a foundation for how technology evolves in the future. It's a platform. Whether you're talking about you know, Internet of Things, or whether you're talking about um, identity, obviously finance, obviously culture, um, all of these things will rest uh, and build and grow on top of the foundation that Web3 provides. Because what we've already seen is that Web2, which is 
kind of, you know, a, a, a many decades year old technology and, and architecture, it doesn't scale past a certain point. And we're really starting to see um, some of the cracks uh, and inefficiencies and costs. We're seeing exclusion in parts of the world. And those are all direct results uh, of the, you know, kind of the ceiling of Web2. When you look back in time and even going back 25 years when the internet was still, you know, incredibly early, there's less than 200 million people on the internet, typically through a dial-up modem. There was st- still a lot of cash going into these companies, even though the technology and the distribution really hadn't caught up to the amount of capital. Where do you see crypto today, given that crypto is 10 years in, it still feels nascent? How would you draw a correlation between Web1 and where Web1, I guess, back in the 90s versus where crypto is today? We're just finishing Web1. It's clear that there's value here. The basic structures, some of the you know kind of early giants are, are emerging, peeking out of the ground. But we haven't you know, we haven't really seen a lot of mainstream adoption like we saw, you know, in the early 2000s when everybody got onto Facebook and, and everybody and having an email address was normal. We have not seen that yet, that mass adoption. Um, so it's actually extremely early. Uh, we haven't gone through, you know, mobile. So there's still so much uh, to go. And that, that's why, you know, just as investing in, you know, kind of 2000, 2001 would have been a great you know, kind of play. Um, and just like for us, example, we we invested quite heavily after the last downturn in 2019. Uh, some of our biggest unicorns, uh, multi-corns have come out of that. So like Blockdaemon, which is blockchain infrastructure, we invested in the seed round like in 2000, early 2019. And that, you know, is now valued or I think the last round was like three and a half billion um, led by you know some of the top firms in the world, and and same with Alchemy, another infrastructure company. Their last round was ten point two billion, led by Andreessen. So that all came out of that downturn. So there's an enormous opportunity right now. You just have to have the understanding and conviction of where the space goes, and the ability to look past the the flames, because this is a cleansing flame. This is a this is a forest fire, but it's a it's one which is helping to clarify. Where is value? What's real? Uh, and what will stand uh, past, you know, these kind of like uh, these cycles? Um, so this is a good thing. It's a great time to be uh, alive and be investing in crypto and blockchain. Markets aside for a second, and we, we saw really the adoption of technology, especially more people being online as a function of, you know, a few things during the 2000s. We saw, you know, the cost of starting a, a software company decreased pretty dramatically through things like cloud computing, AWS. There was more companies coming to market that were online. You saw, of course, the iPhone that was released about 14 years ago. That really put the uh, connectivity in everybody's hands today. There's over 5 billion people now online pretty much 24-7. What are the necessary ingredients to really have this technology move to mainstream adoption? What What's required to get mainstream is actually, and, and this is maybe controversial for, uh, you know, my, my kind of friends and peers that are, you know, fully committed to decentralization, you know, as, as the end goal. It's this assimilation of the technology by the mainstream companies, the largest companies in the world, whether they're, whether it's, you know, Nike or Walmart or, you know, kind of Goldman Sachs or, um, you know, different sovereign governments. That's actually what's going to push it. There has to be an adoption um, of of the technology 
into structures and entities where there are actual users. Decentralization is not great at user adoption. Has not been yet. You know, in the past, let's call it 10 years. They have not been great. We have not been great at, at user adoption. Um, and that might be because we're not a product. We're, we're, we're a technology. And I think that we really need to think about our, you know, the, the, the industry uh, in terms of partnering with Web2 companies to have them thoughtfully and meaningfully use the technology of decentralization to provide more value for their customers. I think that these large-scale enterprises and sovereigns, at least for the moment, they are the distribution mechanism in the same way that the iPhone was a distribution mechanism for internet. So I think that's, that's part of it. It's not a technical solution. It's a, it's a business solution. And when we think about things from a business standpoint, over, over the last few years, we've seen a lot of capital go into the overall blockchain slash crypto market. And there's so many funds. I think, you know, I, I read in your deck, you were tracking over a thousand funds between, you know, traditional venture funds, hedge funds. And your model is to invest both in the companies, but also to invest in the managers. And managers within this space come in all shapes and sizes. We see, you know, the small $10 million funds, and then you see larger funds, the polychains, and Teresa just raised $4.5 billion for their new set of Web3 blockchain funds. We've seen, you know, folks like Electric raise a billion dollars. How do you think about the market of fund managers right now? And before we get into what you look for, what is the market right now? How would you segment the market of people investing in this space? To your first question, Samir, the market of fund managers has really exploded over the last one to two years and is honestly part of the reason why Neural loves talking to and investing in emerging managers. So many managers have spun out of larger or established funds to launch something on their own, or they've left traditional finance to launch a crypto fund. It's truly a, a, a really great time to be investing and finding emerging managers. I will say, though, that the one caveat in all of this is that due diligence is more difficult and more important than ever because not all of these managers have the same level of pedigree and experience that you can expect from traditional finance firms. I guess the second thing that I would also mention, like similar to what you just said, is that the rise of these mega funds, you know, mega funds that are over 1 billion, I think that's actually a really good thing. And it's a healthy sign of the crypto space evolving. Mega funds are often raised by really high pedigree or established firms, which are able to, you know, bring in larger pools of capital, institutional capital. You know, these are these are firms that would be difficult for other smaller funds to support. So mega funds are very important to the ecosystem. And, you know, finally, for, for your last question uh, about what Neural really looks for, we love smaller managers and we love funds that are under the $250 million mark. These are funds that can, you know, often be nimble or even participate in smaller deals uh, that larger funds might struggle to justify in their portfolio. 
in this industry, you know, there's like an immense amount of, of value that's generated in the very early stages. And we rely on our managers to make a lot of these early pre-seed and seed round uh, bets. Our team will then generally come in and focus on, you know, a, a stage beyond that. So like a series A stage. And we like to consider when we are looking at our managers and doing the diligence for those managers, uh, we like to consider something that we like we call the Solana effect. We try to take out extremely high performing outliers or one to two investments that a fund manager might have made and really compare manager performance with those investments stripped out of their portfolio to other peers. That's how we can identify uh, what that manager's ability to recreate their portfolio might be and consistently generate alpha um, rather than just having good luck uh, a few uh, early on in in in, in their uh, crypto investing years, and so you know this is evaluated during our due diligence process, and you know we're looking at building long term relationships with these managers, and neural oftentimes looks to come into subsequent funds as well, so. Manager focus and diligence is is a really important part of what we're we're looking at. I think right now, and you know, there's a lot of LPs that are listening on, on this podcast are having a tougher and tougher time evaluating managers. And of course, we've seen the big run up in returns over the last few years, both in crypto and non crypto, and crypto in particular. We've seen enormous returns in many cases distributed as. Things like tokens have been, you know, are liquid and you can actually return in some cases 10, 20, 30, 40x capital on an ongoing basis going forward where the market might be a little bit different. What does it truly mean to be differentiated? The differentiation uh, is, is, really, is really key beyond, you know, in addition to like the risk management, uh, uh, you know, what we, what we look at, I think that trying to find that alpha, that edge that each manager has, it's a very hard thing to just like data yourself into, you know, you're not going to find the level of detail uh, and the nuance that comes from an already really difficult industry to penetrate, much less, you know, grasp and wrap your head around like crypto. You're not going to find all that in, in PitchBook or Crunchbase or whatever. It comes from being in the trenches. Um, it comes from having kind of bled during the market cycles. Uh, it comes from having, you know, kind of bonded with the managers and having invested with them. And that's, I think, where we're, we're slightly differentiated as, a, as an LP. Most of the managers that we've invested in, I know personally and have invested with um, or have seen on my cap tables uh, of our portfolio companies. And so we have that, you know, kind of contact bond uh, going into it. It's not, a, it's not an abstract exercise. It's a lived exercise. In terms of, like, actual aspects, uh, I would say, obviously, you know, what they've invested in um, and how they see the world in terms of where crypto goes. Those are really important things, but also things like geographic diversification. So we have funds inside of uh, neural capital that are more focused on Asia, more focused on Europe. Uh, we have funds that are uh, vertically specialized. So we have the fund called Spermion, which is 
the, the first NFT fund backed by, you know, Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon originally. And that's, you know, one of the best NFT funds, really, really cutting edge thinking about where the space goes of, of digital assets and digital culture. We have Lightshift, which is a really interesting model where they actually embed their engineers into the companies uh, that they invest in, which is, which is incredible. So there's so many different ways to, to differentiate. The problem is that there's so much noise. Unless you really understand the differences between, you know, a pure token fund, an equity fund, an equity VC kind of blockchain fund, uh, a hedge fund, a hedge fund with a venture pocket or a venture fund with liquid pocket, uh, you know, unless you understand how tokens get listed and, you know, how, you know, some of the, the kind of risks when you go into it, like if, unless you have that real direct, uh, again, like contact bond with the industry, which, you know, we earned through our, you know, kind of years of investing, um, earned the hard way, I would think that it can be difficult to really make heads or tails. Um, and that can somehow be confused with, is there anything really real here? So there's two different questions there. What's real and what's valuable? And I think we really approach that from, again, that lived experience. I would just add also to, to that point that Jahan made that we're still so early in the evolution of this asset class that a lot of times when a fund launches, they, and I mean, again, it's only been 10 years, but the core uh, strategy could change a lot throughout their investment period. And if you don't know the questions to ask, it is very difficult to understand truly what you're investing in. A lot of the documents that these funds put out, they have very um, broad language. And if you're, you know, if you're looking just to get exposure to one thing, you might not know the questions to ask. And that is one of the things that we do every day, day in and day out. And with our compounded knowledge of the industry, having invested in the industry for the last 10 years, almost like we, we know what could potentially change and we're ready for that. And that is like how we're building our portfolio and how we're constructing the diversification element. That is something that I see so often. Strategy drift definitely is one of the biggest pet peeves of any LP. Final question for you both around how investors or LP should think about investing in crypto funds. It does seem like there's wide variants of manager types. And of course, just like traditional funds, highly segmented small firms versus large funds. Is there an area within the crypto space or at least crypto managers that you're particularly bullish on? For, for our portfolio, we tend to skew towards smaller funds. Uh, we feel that the smaller, newer, more nimble managers are the ones who are going to be able to generate the alpha uh, at this point, you know, they are also the ones who are very collaborative when sharing deals. And we think, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, community is still a cornerstone element of this space. And so you want to align yourself with managers who have that inherent community building element and deal sharing uh, viewpoint versus people who are, who are who are not as open. Because, again, this we are still so early in the technology of this space. Our sweet spot for our funds is generally within the 100 million to 200 million range. And, you know, while we, you know, 
love to evaluate funds that have been around for a while. We are very excited by emerging funds as well. We often believe that some of those some of those emerging funds um, have just been crafting their fund thesis for so long that that fund will outperform just because of the time that they've spent on the portfolio construction versus just the fundraising and, and executing on, on previous funds. It, it, it bears to sort of reinforce how early it is. It's, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years, but 10 years is nothing in the, uh, you know, not only the introduction, but mass adoption of technologies. I mean, the internet is still adopting to a certain degree where today, you know, it's 5 billion people, but it took roughly 25 years to get to this point. So it's going to be exciting to see where the market goes. We really appreciate both of you coming on and and sharing this, uh, sharing your thoughts uh, on such a fascinating uh, topic. Thank you for having us, Samir. This was a lot of fun. Hope we can do it again. Thanks so much, Samir. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Robbie and Jahan. To learn more about them or Neural Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.